Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 52 of The Essential X-Lapsed. An episode I didn't think we'd be getting to for uh, well, quite a while. Um, I was actually uh, almost 100% certain, or actually I was 100% certain, that uh, my DCBS order was going to arrive before we even got back to The Essentials, and uh, it did. It did arrive. Only problem is, it came with zero X-Men books. Didn't come with any Spidey books either, so both of the current year shows are uh, currently boned. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be knee-deep, shoulder-deep, uh, overhead-deep in Silver Age wackiness for uh, at least the foreseeable future. Let's get into today's issue here, because we are wrapping up our two-part grotesque storyline, for better or for worse. It is X-Men number 42, which had a March 1968 cover date. The story is called If I Should Die. And we also have a backup called The End or The Beginning. Both are written by Roy Thomas. We got pencils by Don Heck and Werner Roth. Inks George Tuska and Herb Trimpey. Letters Sam Rosen and Al Kurzrock. Al, no, Al Kurzrock. Only one Al, not Al's. Uh, edit Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Now, before we get into the book, this one has a uh, fairly famous cover, or an iconic cover, I suppose. It features the not-a-dream-not-a-hoax-not-an-imaginary-story tag, and uh, it promotes that this one will see the death of Professor X. And this is actually one of the handful of the original 66 issues that uh, I actually own an original copy of. So it's a, it's a fun one to, uh, to discuss here. Let's get right in. We pick up where we left off last issue. We're at the mansion, where Angel and Iceman are still quite peeved that Marvel Girl will not come back with them to the tunnels in order to fight off Grotesque the Subhuman. Jean casually and somewhat sensually leans up against some furniture like she's modeling here. It's pretty weird. She says she ain't going nowhere. Just then, Professor X wheels himself back in to kind of be an aloof dick. He tells Warren that not only is Jean not going back to the tunnels, but he and Bobby are now grounded as well. Angel insists that Beast and Cyclops probably need their help with Grotesque, but Chuck ain't having none of it. He tells Jean to make sure nobody leaves. And Warren and Bobby wonder what it is that Xavier might be hiding from them. We shoot over to the tunnels where Grotesque and Beast spend an entire page slamming each other into walls. Then, Cyclops gets involved, uh, revealing himself as having another, yet another, weird optic power. You see, here, he's able to use the blast as something of like a jet engine to propel himself out of the way of a large piece of machinery that Grotesque hurled in his direction. They fight some more, until Grotesque decides to beat a hasty retreat, or maybe he just gets bored of the fight. He tears a stud off his chest plate and slams it to the ground, which causes a solid smokescreen to pop up. And solid, as in, like, hard, like the fellows are unable to penetrate it. It, like, makes a smoke wall, basically. On the other side, the subhuman celebrates his pending victory, as in, uh, well, he's about to explode the earth. At this point, since there's nothing else they can do, Scott and Hank head back to the mansion. There, they're greeted by Jean, who expresses relief at seeing them both home safe. Scott asks to speak with the professor, but Jean tells him no. Scott demands to see the prof, and so Gene TKs him into a wall. It's going to be a lot of slamming into walls in this issue. I just want to state that up front so you don't think it's my lack of creativity going into the story here. They're, they're going through walls here like the Teen Titans did back in the early days. Everything going through a wall. Anyway, 
She informs the fellas that she's only holding them off until Professor X says it's cool. And like in the very next sentence, it turns out that the professor does in fact say it's cool. Now Hank wonders why Xavier is having this private psychic chat with Jean, and only Jean, as in, you know, keeping them out of the loop. From here we head back to our baddie, and uh, Grotesque is slamming his way into... I, hmm, was it a museum? I can't remember. Uh, wherever the hell that seismic machine is, you know, that one that's causing all the earthquakes? You know the one, right? Anyway, here is where things get stupid. Err. Um, Grotesque grabs some random worker and demands he be allowed to access the seismic thing so he can obliterate the entire planet. At this point, the, that random worker, that just nobody, he posits that the subhuman's motivation is revenge. Why does that matter? Your guess is as good as mine. And then, that random worker yanks off his rubber face mask, revealing himself to be... Professor X. But why? why? This doesn't impress Grotesque, and, and really, why should it? He throws the prof to the ground and goes about the rest of his business. As Grotesque reaches for the machine's rather phallic joystick, Xavier blasts him with a mental bolt. But the subhuman proves to be either too strong or too brainless to be affected, and so he still manages to give the machine a handy. Now the seismic whatever-the-hell begins to whir to life. Just then, Angel comes swooping in, and he's armed with... Get this, um... Solar orbs. Literal balls of sunlight that the professor keeps for experiments. Really? <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, he blasts Grotesque with the literal power of the sun, which temporarily blinds him. Then Beast joins in, but does more harm than good when he gets snapmared right into Warren, and they both slam into a nearby wall. Like I said, a lot of wall slams here. Even, like, Frank Lloyd Wright would be, like, confused by this one. Grotesque then goes to pull another stud off his chest plate. Don't know what this one will do, but Cyclops is there to blast it out of his hand. Gene attends to the professor, and together, melding TP and TK, they try and shut down the machine. Oh, and uh, Iceman is here, too. And, um, if I were to give you one million years, you would never guess what he tries to do to the bad guy. Okay, you probably know exactly what he tried to do to the bad guy. If you guessed that he used Iceman Attack A, which is encasing the foe in ice, I guess you win the pony. By now, the professor is standing up, using both his mechanical legs with a TK boost from his favorite student, and he walks toward the machine. Nearby, Grotesque is blasting at the boys with... I think Xavier's own solar orbs, or maybe it's a stud on his chest plate that does the same damn thing? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, now check this out. Cyclops uses yet another weird optic gimmick here. You see, he's blasting out two beams at once. Like, if he had one main beam, it's split down the middle, which sends the two resulting half beams shooting out at different angles, which perfectly, you know, uh, cancels out the solar blast from Grotesque. It's... It's something. Uh, Grotesque tires of this, and boy can I relate. And so he grabs Warren and proceeds to swing him over his head like a bolo. The baddie then throws Angel at Scott, who, get this, uses a gentle optic blast in order to slow Warren down without hurting him. Uh-huh. Um, okay, Grotesque next rushes over to the machine, pushes Xavier out of the way so he can proceed to rip it open and start punching it. Grotesque claims that he's trying to get more power from it, but this is really dumb. I thought he was trying to use it to blow up the, the Earth. Uh, 
Okay, whatever. The machine explodes, killing Grotesque. And he'll be dead for about nine real-world years before reappearing in Ms. Marvel number 6, June 1977 cover date. Off to the side, Xavier ain't looking all that hot, neither. The X-Men gather around their fallen leader as he gives them one final order to shut the F up so he can explain why he's been so cagey of late. You see, he discovered that he had an illness not even he could cure. So is that to say that there are illnesses that he can cure? Huh. Where are those Krakoan magic meds when you need them, right? Anyway, Xavier says he wanted to stop Grotesque from blowing up the Earth, even if it was the last thing he ever did. And I guess it turns out that it was. Xavier dies in Angel's arms. We close out with the X-Men carrying their lifeless leader out of... wherever the hell this fight took place. Now, we've got no time to mourn, however, because we have a backup strip to get to. These are the origins of the Uncanny X-Men. We're continuing the origin of Cyclops. Now, this backup series isn't really good, but uh, this installment might just be the worst yet. Now, we pick up right where we left off, uh, where Jack of Diamonds is now the living diamond, having blasted himself with the uh, Diamond-O-Matic, or whatever it was. Now, he's facing off against Professor X, while young Scott Summers is hiding off to the side, just as Charles had told him to do. Xavier uses his mental bolts in order to freeze Jack in place, and then commands Scott to blast the baddie with his optic beam. Which... I mean, tactical, this this is not. I mean, this is obvious stuff here. Uh, Scott and Charles then race off to an adjoining room to buy themselves some time. Uh, this just doesn't seem well thought out, does it? You know, this is like a horror movie where, like, you know, when the, when the teenager is getting chased by, uh, you know, the, the murdering madman, they run upstairs, right, instead of, like, out of the house and, and to, you know, the nearest phone or to a car. Anyway, in this room, uh, Xavier reveals to the lad that he's been a recluse for years, and hasn't had any human companionship in quite some time. Which, I don't know about y'all, but uh, if I'm a young, virile teenager and a creepy old man lures me into a locked room and then tells me that he hasn't had human contact in a while, it might trigger some red flags, right? Maybe? I don't know. Uh, well, we don't get much time to, to dwell on that because Jack tears his way into the safe room. Uh, Scott is ordered over to a vibrational machine... So this room gets kinkier and kinkier, doesn't it? Anyway, Xavier mentally walks him through how to throw the right switches, and, well, he does. The living diamond freezes in place and then bursts into atoms. For a moment, and just a moment, uh, Scott feels pretty bad about his role in this murder. Because, I mean, it totally is murder, right? Scott's also quite upset that he thought Jack Winters was his friend. Dude, you met him, like, 45 minutes ago. Let's, let's move on. Uh, we wrap up with Scott escorting the professor back to his big, empty mansion, where he's invited to remain as the first X-Man. Before we know it, Scott is fitted with his Cyclops costume, and the rest is history, and that's history that we will continue to cover in this pretty dull series of backups. Next episode, we shift gears over to a three-part story in The Avengers. Uh, we're gonna party like it's 1963, because Magneto's back. But for now, let's see if we can get any mileage out of this story that we just read. Um, this wasn't great. Um, it kind of feels like like Roy was writing like 15 or 16 different stories and then found out he had to cram them all into one issue. Like, I don't understand some of the motivations here. Like, why did Xavier need the X-Men to remain at the mansion? Was there any reason given for that other than 
he wanted the opportunity to hog all the glory one last time before he dies? I don't get it. Like, yeah, you guys stay here. Scott and Beast could have been killed by Grotesque uh, during, you know, the early part of the issue. Professor didn't care. He was just too busy modeling a, uh, you know, rubber face mask so he can, for a single panel, pose as a random lab worker? Just to find out the motivations behind Grotesque's attack? I mean, let's break it down here. Does it matter if it's a if it was an attack motivated by revenge? I mean, it could have been a crime of passion. It could have been uh, Grotesque lost a bet and had to blow up the planet. What the hell does it matter? Why does Xavier need to know that it's a revenge-based attack? Uh, and then what's the point of him unmasking? Like, Grotesque is going to know who this creepy little bald man is. Even when he says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm in charge of those, those costumed guys you fought last issue, Grotesque didn't care. Why would he care? I, I just don't understand it. And, you know, I'm kind of kicking myself right now because, uh, as you guys know, I'm living between two houses right now. We we still can't make up our minds where we're going to uh, live long term. So half my library is at my, or actually like 80% of my library is at this other house. The house I'm living in right now has just the books I need for X-Lapsed and uh, the, you know, the Sunday shows just to make sure they're at hand. And I meant to pick up, just the other day, I was going to pick up the comics uh, creators on X-Men um, book that I believe, was it Tom DeFalco who put that out through like Titan Publishing back probably 15, 20 years ago? And uh, in that, uh, a lot of the X-Men writers over the years were interviewed at length. So I meant to grab that to see if I could read anything from Roy about, you know, killing Professor X, because it is a pretty big deal. I think a lot of us, you know, fake-ass comics historians know how this is going to play out already. We know it's not a permanent thing. So we know that uh, I think Xavier comes back, uh, not to not to spoil anything, but right before X-Men goes into reprint land here. So probably issue 65, 64, I think Xavier comes back. And we'll figure out all that reveal stuff uh, when we when we get there. But I can't remember if uh, this was intended to be a permanent thing when it uh, first went down. I'll try and get back to the other house uh, maybe today and see if I can grab that because uh, our next few episodes are going to be back matter light. You know, we're not going to have a letters page. We're not going to have bullpen bulletins. Uh, we're not going to have the uh, the Mighty Marvel checklist because we're doing three issues of Avengers coming up. I don't have the letters pages for those, and we already covered the bullpen for those months. So... They're going to be kind of back matter light. Maybe I can interject with some uh, some words of wisdom from Rascally Roy as it pertains to the death of Professor X during during those episodes. We'll we'll see if I can get over there today. If not, uh, we'll get them soon. But back to the story. You know, as a story and an issue unto itself, it was not very good. <laughs> it wasn't great at all. Uh, grotesque is. I mean, it's a very monster of the week here, isn't it? Um, and I mean, this is a Silver Age comic. It does veer into that sort of territory uh, more often than it doesn't, it seems. But I am happy that we're kind of on the other end of this one because we're coming back into Magneto territory with the next several episodes. So hopefully we'll get uh, a higher standard of quality or maybe at least the stories will feel a little bit more like X-Men stories as we've come to know them. I mean, the next three episodes are Avengers, but you know me, we're all about laying the groundwork here on this show. It's all-inclusive, all the stuff, so we will 
lay the foundation of Magneto's return, and uh, then we will come back to the X-Men, and I believe we'll have an X-Men Avengers crossover, and yeah, then we'll move on to uh, bigger and better things. But I think that's all I have to say about this issue. Well, let's hop into the letters page here. We're going to start with Jeffrey in Massachusetts, who suggests that Stan try and pair up different artists with different letterers, claiming that this could be a brand new innovation in the world of comic art. Eh? Okay. Uh, Stan says that it's not a bad idea, and goes on to say that they use different letterers all the time. So, <laughs> I guess... Uh, this new innovation is uh, is old. I don't know. Eddie in California. And Eddie. Oh, Eddie brings the snark here. He presents the list. And we've seen these lists before. But he lists off the types of letters that get printed in Marvel periodicals. And oh boy. Oh boy. Number one. Boy, issue number whichever was the best one ever. Words cannot describe its marvelousness. Now he claims that these letters get exposure for obvious reasons. And I feel like we could make the same comment about some of the more ass-kissy and uh, bought-and-paid-for comic reviewers out there today, because, yeah, that's the quotes that get used. Two, the opposite sort of letter. Ever since issue number whatever, the book has gone downhill. And he claims that these are printed only to show that Marvel's got a thick skin, which I suppose I could comment that this is certainly 100% a thing of the past. (laughs) We do not get much of this. During current year Number three, no prize baiters Aha, I found a trivial error Now can I have a no prize? And he says that these give Stan the opportunity to show some humility Four, novelty, humorous, or rhyming letters And uh, I feel like like all three of those words should have quotes around them Because they're very, very seldom humorous, you know Five, no prize baiting, again Okay Six, letters from servicemen. All us guys stationed out here in Latveria think your mags are great, even though all we get is Millie the model. Okay. Number seven, jingoistic letters suggesting that Marvel is advancing the cause of Americanism, liberty, and justice for all. Number eight, smart-assy, how letters get published letters. This guy's an asshole, and Stan pretty much says as much. All I can picture is uh, Eddie's smug face as he's writing this letter. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm gonna let him have it. It's like, oh, what a dick. Uh, next up, Roberta in Pennsylvania, and she is part of the Correction Patrol here. Because on X-Men number 38, page 14, panel 2, the Vanisher is referred to as a crimson-clad mutant, and yet he's wearing green. And we did point that out here on the show as well. We never got a no prize for it. Also, Roberta hates the idea of ranks in the MMMS, and she'd also like Marvel to stick to comics and slow down on all the horror, I mean, merchandising. Stan says that they're in the merch biz because the readers demand it, by golly, but he does offer her a non-commercial no-prize for pointing out the Vanisher wardrobe boner. Alan in New York City says that X-Men number 39 was magnificent. He's super pleased that the Professor is back safe and sound at home. Well, about that. Also, he likes the new X-Men's costumes, though he has a question about them. How can they have new costumes on the cover, but still have the old ones in the trademark? What the hell does that even mean? Okay, whatever the case, he wants a no prize for pointing it out. He's also enjoying the Origins backup strip, and Stan tap dances around the trademark thing, which I still don't quite understand. Are we talking about the corner box? 
I don't know. He says that they use the old ones in the trademark to attract Marvel converts who might not recognize the characters otherwise. So, no no prize for you, Jagoff. On that note, Mike in Indiana claims to have not recognized four out of the five X-Men on the cover of X-Men number 39. (laughs) Jesus. Uh, He recognized Iceman straight away because, duh, he's Iceman. He likes all the new suits except for Angels, uh, and he's not even mad about the suspenders. He's just not a fan of the exposed hair or, you know, head sock thing. He says that Cyclops' costume is the best, Marvel Girl is second best, Beast is third best, and the other two eat a bag. Mike closes out by saying he buys 10 Marvel comics a month. Stan is sure that among those 10 comics, for such a fashion-conscious fellow, is uh, Millie the Model. He probably, he probably buys that one. But, uh, you know, talking about fashion shows here, um, I'm kind of uh, percolating an idea for X-Lapse number 300, the episode 300, which was supposed to be happening this month, but will probably be happening next month because of, you know, DCBS stuff. But, uh... I'm thinking that we might be doing something having to do with X-Men fashion, so uh, look forward to that, or or don't. Uh, next up, we got uh, Royal Balloon in Washington. Uh, maybe this guy had hippie parents, I don't know. Now, he's ticked off, or I, I don't know, Royal Balloon, is that a, I don't know what kind of name that is. Royal Balloon is ticked off that Stan would bring Magneto back in the pages of Avengers instead of X-Men. And of course, we will kick off that story next episode. He enjoyed the return of Blob, Eunice, Mastermind, and Vanisher as members of Factor 3. Isn't so keen on the Mutant Master, though, so I guess we got some good news that the Mutant Master is gone. He likes Don Heck's art, so uh, I guess he's the one. Uh, Stan suggests that Royal be patient, for Magneto will be back in the pages of X-Men. Like, you know, almost immediately. Finally, we have Robert in Jersey, who is enjoying the backup features in X-Men and Journey into Mystery. And that's the origins of the X-Men and Inhumans, respectively. He also likes the recent Ant Hill story in Avengers. Stan thanks him and then says that they decided to print this letter in X-Men because they used Irv Forbush's three-headed coin. And X-Men won the toss, I guess. Uh, Bullpen bulletins, otherwise known as, Come and get it, Taiga. Here's our New Year's gift to you. That doesn't rhyme. It's not a tongue twister, but it's, uh, it's the subtitle. Item! Hulk and Captain America have gotten their own mighty Marvel mags, which means we've got no more tales to astonish or tales of suspense. Item! You may be asking yourself, where where are Iron Man and Submariner going to wind up now that their books are no more? Well, for this month only, there's going to be an Iron Man and Submariner one-shot. Starting next month, well, Stan says we'll talk about that another time. Stan also says that there's a lot of surprises coming up and that 1968 is going to be the year of Marvel. Item. More about the Hulk and Cap books. Uh, There's going to be backups in them. All about some, you know, origins. Uh, Not sure when those are going to start. I checked out the first few months of both books and at least the credits don't show that there are any backups there. For all I know, they're in there. Who knows? Maybe if Marvel Unlimited made their search functionality a little bit more user-friendly, I would dig around and, and see if I can actually, you know, read them. Uh, item. Not brand ech is the smash hit of the decade. If you say so, Stan. Uh, Captain Marvel has also taken the world by storm. Again, if you say so, Stan. And uh, by golly, we are knee-deep into the second golden age of Marvel. Item. The MMMS ranks, uh, the final rank is PMM, Permanent Marvelite Maximus. 
Stan says this is the apex of titledom only awarded to those who have the first four ranks already. Now he says if you're a PMM, you can actually call Irving Forbush by his real name, Tamum Should. Are you kidding me? A Somerton Man reference in the bullpen bulletins? Uh, for those unaware of who or what the Somerton Man was, um, it was an unsolved case where back in 1948, an unidentified dead man was found on a beach in Australia. In his pocket was a scrap of paper with the Persian phrase Tamum Should printed on it. And Tamum Should means it's finished. Now the paper was from the last page of Omar Khayyam's 12th century book, Rubliyat. Now, this case has remained unsolved, and, uh, I mean, it's still going today. In May 2021, the man's body was actually exhumed for analysis. The story has a load of twists and turns, and I'm sure there are places out there that have uh, discussed it at, you know, great length here. It should be pretty easy to find a lot of discussion in audio and video and in print uh, online if you're interested in going any deeper on that. It's a, it's a fun one. It's a fun case. Next up, we got Stan's Soapbox, where he talks a little bit more about uh, how it's the second golden age of Marvel, don't you know? Uh, He thanks all the fans and pros for making this possible. Also in this missive, Stan promises not to make fun of brand Ech anymore. He says the only time you'll ever see those words is when they're promoting their goofy gag mag of the same name. From here, Mighty Marvel Checklist. And speaking of brand Ech, we got not brand Ech number seven, and it's a special origin issue. Featuring the origins of the Fantastical Four and Stuperman. Ugh. Um, Fantastic Four, number 73, Doctor Doom Lives Again, guest starring Spider-Man, Daredevil, and Thor. Spider-Man number 59 has the brainwasher revealed. Avengers 50 has Hercules vs. Typhon. Daredevil 38 has DD as DD versus DD as DD. As in Daredevil in the body of Doctor Doom versus Doctor Doom in the body of Daredevil. Captain Marvel number 13 is still on sale, if you're lucky, probably right next to that stack of unsold Peach Momoko books. Thor number 150, Thor versus Hela. Iron Man and Submariner one shot. Uh, I'm guessing they're probably just burning off the last, you know, half issue length stories for each issue. Uh, next month they move on to bigger and better things. Captain America Premier Issue, number 100. He teams with the Black Panther versus Baron Zemo. Incredible Hulk Premier Issue, number 102. Hulk in Asgard, or versus Asgard, or hanging out with Asgard, or eating at Asgard. I, Asgard's involved. We got Strange Tales, 167. Nick Fury versus the Yellow Claw, part 758. And also Doctor Strange searches for Victoria Bentley in the wildly redundant Deadly Dimension of Death. Sergeant Fury number 52 has the Howlers infiltrating a Nazi concentration camp in order to rescue an allied scientist. Captain Savage number 2 has the Leatherneck Raiders versus the Sensational Samurai Squad. Huh. Also, Baron Strucker does something. And then we got reprints in Collector's Items Classics 14 and Marvel Tales 13. Looking down at the Merry Marvel Marching Society box, we got 26 newbies, including David Roth of St. Louis. Probably not David Lee Roth, but we can pretend, right? I mean, he's from Indiana, I believe, so uh, maybe he uh, was on a trip and wound up sending the letter from St. Louis. Uh, we can we can hope, right? But that, my friends, is our issue. Let's hop into our mailbag here. we got a couple of letters. Uh, first one, Andrew Franklin talking about so many aliens. 
He says, overall, I enjoyed the long Factor 3 storyline. I felt it gave the book some much-needed structure and momentum. Maybe it did go on longer than it should have, but before it, the many issues of one-and-dones weren't very exciting. I always enjoyed Banshee, so it was fun to see his first appearances and his adventures with the original team. The ending with the Mutant Master reveal hit me strangely, though. You said it yourself. That was a classic Silver Age abrupt twist ending that is resolved in two pages. And the reveal of him being an alien really made me stop and say, What? And with the Frankenstein story the next issue, and Lucifer's important piece in Charles's backstory, and knowing what I do about some of the future stories coming up, it sure seems like a, these X-Men spend a lot of time dealing with aliens. It seems very out of place. I feel like the whole alien thing is just kind of a lazy way to come up with threats for the team. I could not agree more. Um, you guys know me in space stories <laughs> from all the shows that I've done here. Not a huge fan of the space stuff. I find it very hard to connect with. And also, just as you pointed out here, the overabundance of the alien threat being revealed kind of cheapens the reveal overall. I mean, a story where aliens do anything, uh, that should kind of be like the most fantastical part of any story, right? And now it's just something we come to expect, and it's something we roll our eyes at. I mean, it's like just above clones on the laziness meter for me. It's... Such an odd thing to realize looking at these early issues with a more analytical eye. Um, you know, having come in with, uh, you know, Volume 2 of X-Men, it felt a lot more Earth-based. You know, it felt a lot more uh, really, really uh, leaning into the soap opera elements. It felt very much like a more casual book. Of course, they were, you know, superhero, supervillain stuff, but it wasn't so, wasn't so spacey. You know, there were space stories, of course, but they were... I mean, they were actually just stories. They were things that were different from the rest of the things. They were outliers, I suppose. Andrew continues, which sort of touches on my next point. I'm not a huge fan of Silver Age Marvel comics. I prefer Silver Age DC comics overall. But the Silver Age X-Men stories just aren't very good, in my humble opinion. It's fun now to go back over them with our future point of view and see them for the historical artifacts they are in the wider context of Marvel Comics history, but I don't see how many people at the time were fans of this book. I'm a little more familiar with the later Neil Adams stuff. That at least has very good artwork and composition. But I can see why, by this point, the writing was already on the wall for the X-Men. It makes me wonder why so many people in the 70s and 80s had a clamoring for the original X-Men, because I just don't think it's really all that interesting of a book. I think you're right. I think they knew at this point that uh, there was going to have to be some changes made to keep this book afloat. Uh, over the course of the next... I'm looking at the, the wiki page here for... Uh, the Marvel Database page for Volume 1. And uh, this issue, I mean, the word X-Men is very, very small in the title. You know, the main, you know, the main focus of the, uh, of the title is the death of Professor X. Next issue is the power of Magneto. After that, it's Angel. Then the senses-shattering Cyclops. Then the end of the X-Men. Then Beast and Iceman. Then Cyclops and Marvel Girl. It, it, it's... It's like they're trying to attract readers in with something other than the X-Men title. I think I think that might have been a Hail Mary trying to trying to get things figured out because right after that we jump into like the more contemporary X-Men logo, the one that they you know always seem to go back to uh, when when things go back to normal. Uh, that that one's gonna first appear in X-Men number fifty. So um, I think they're trying a lot of different stuff here to keep. Fans engaged and interested here. 
you know, we got to look at like uh, the letters pages, right? We don't know what letters we're not seeing printed, so we might we might assume that there are a lot of letters about how, hey, we want Cyclops solo stories, or hey, we'd love to see you know Iceman and Beast go hang out somewhere for an entire issue, and maybe they're trying to give the give the fans what they want. But I do definitely think uh, there was a measure of writing on the wall at this point. I, I'm, I, I can't see the X-Men being really strong in the sales department. Uh, Andrew continues, As for that Frankenstein story, it's really funny that aliens would create that as an ambassador to the human race. And it's very strange that Mary Shelley would meet it and come up with the human reanimation story of the Frankenstein novel. It's just a bizarre story. And yeah, it was very much a bizarre story. Andrew wraps up with, So until I get totally mind-wiped of my feelings for the Silver Age stories, make mine essential X-lapsed. Well, thank you so much for writing in on the Silver Age stuff here. Sometimes I feel like a, like I'm a man on an island with the Silver Age stuff here. Because uh, really, I mean, these stories really don't um, invite analysis or discussion. They really just are what they are. So I appreciate you taking some time and uh, and sending me your thoughts. Uh, next up, Billy D talking Factor 3. He says, hey, Chris, enjoyed finally hearing about Factor 3. It took me a minute, but I realized who Peter Sanderson is. No offense to Mr. S, I just have a bad memory. He was very instrumental for Marvel and DC with informational for, with information and archival practices. Kudos to him. Thanks for another good episode. Well, thank you so much, Billy. And uh, yeah, Peter Sanderson wrote a letter into the letters page there. And uh, for folks who haven't listened to the episode where we discussed that, Peter Sanderson, as Billy put it here, huge, huge in uh, in Marvel DC history archives. Uh, he was uh, the guy who read every single DC comic uh, prior to Who's Who and Crisis. And I mean, that must sound like a dream job for a lot of us, but could you imagine actually, you know, being locked in that room with tens of thousands of comics and being given a notepad and <laughs> told, read this and write some notes. <laughs> make sure everything's in order and makes sense. And oh boy, could you imagine that? I mean, I'm looking at the episode I just record. I'm recording right now um, for one issue of X-Men, and I started working on it five and a half hours ago, and I've been writing, reading, researching, and recording ever since. So, uh, give me ten thousand of these things. That's that's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. But uh, yeah, Peter Sanderson, a huge name in the comics fandom and in comics. Uh, he's a real ass comics historian, unlike uh, unlike myself. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Billy. I really do appreciate it. Uh, speaking of which, let's hop over to the shout-out department. It's a very short shout-out department. I guess uh, whatever the last episode was uh, really didn't go over all that well, on, on social media anyway. On Twitter, I want to thank Jeremiah, Dave Schultz, Joe Crawford, and Pat Sampson for clicking those interactability buttons and uh, helping to raise the profile of the program. On Facebook, Joe Crawford, Billy D, Walt Nealon, Pat Sampson, and Jeremiah. Over on Instagram, I want to thank Mark Jagger, The Mint Condition Podcast, Pepe de Brazil, The Positive Fan, and X-Men Revisited. While on the thank you train, let's talk to the patrons at patreon.com slash xlabs. I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, Mark Jagger, Herman, and Andrew in Belfast. Thank you all so, so much for your support. But I think that's going to end it for today. 
anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason, I invite you to do so. I encourage you to do so. I beg you to do so. You can find me several different ways. On Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics. On Instagram at 90sXmen. You can send an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. Of course, the audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. you find that anywhere you find podcasts on the internet. And one more time, the Patreon is patreon.com slash xlapsed, where you'll find some exclusive content behind the scenes, who do, and a great group of folks to chat with. But that's all I got for now. I'd like to thank you all so much for choosing to share some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya!